that balance has always been a little bit difficult in nursing homes. There's this notion that people with disabilities need a safe environment. And that may be true, but they also must be given sort of a, a dignity to take certain risks. I'm J.B. Wogan from Mathematica, and welcome back to On the Evidence, a show that examines what we know about today's most urgent challenges and how we can make progress in addressing them. Today, we're going to talk about the impacts of COVID-19 on people living in nursing homes and assisted living facilities. In general, the pandemic has disproportionately affected people in long-term care settings. That disproportionate impact was even more severe in the state of Connecticut, where, as of July 30th, about 72% of COVID-19-related deaths were among long-term care residents. My guests for this episode are Mathematica's Patricia Rowan and Deborah Lipson. They both worked on an independent assessment of COVID-19's impacts on Connecticut's nursing homes and assisted living facilities. The final report includes findings on why the pandemic was so devastating to the state's long-term care facilities earlier in the year, but it also recommends steps that the state and the long-term care industry can take to prepare for future infectious disease outbreaks. Although Mathematica conducted the assessment for the state of Connecticut, the report's recommendations are a must-read for policymakers in every state. We'll get into those findings and recommendations in greater detail, but I want to tease to three in particular. First, the number of cases in the town where the nursing home was located mattered. As the community incidence increased, so did the number of cases per licensed bed. Second, staffing ratios mattered. Nursing homes with high staffing ratings, which reflect the ratio of staff to residents, had fewer cases and deaths per licensed bed. And third, the safety measures taken to control disease spread in nursing homes appears to have come at the cost of residents' well-being. And by well-being, I mean depression, substantial unplanned weight loss, and severe pressure ulcers. What you heard in the preview clip was Deborah Lipson talking about the need to balance the public health and safety concerns related to the pandemic with concerns about the physical, emotional, and psychosocial needs of the residents, and where possible, with necessary precautions, to allow for in-person visits again. The full report is available on Mathematica's website, and we'll link in the show notes to resources for further reading about the assessment in Connecticut. I hope you find this conversation useful. Trisha, Deborah, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. We're going to be talking about COVID-19's impact on long-term care in Connecticut and some of the work that Mathematica has been doing for the state of Connecticut. But before we dive into the details there, I was hoping you could each outline for the listeners what work you do related to long-term care and how you became interested in this area of public policy. Sure, I can start. My name is Patricia Rowan. I am a researcher at Mathematica, and this area of public policy research has always been really personal for me. I started volunteering in nursing homes when I was 13 years old. Each of my grandparents spent time in nursing homes prior to dying, and those communities and the facilities where they lived were really special and important to our family in a lot of ways. So when I went to graduate school to study health policy, 
I knew that this was an area where I wanted to, to spend my career. Um, so when I, I really jumped on the first opportunity I had at my first job out of graduate school to, to study long-term care. And, um, you know, my faith really deeply informs this work. My tradition teaches that, you know, the biblical commandment to honor thy father and mother isn't just about listening to your mom and dad when you're a kid, but rather an obligation that we all have to take care of everyone in our community as they age and to make sure that they live out their final years with dignity. And the rest, I guess, as they say, is history. Yeah, that's great. Deborah, what about you? Can you give a little potted biography and how it relates to long-term care? Sure. My name is Deborah Lipson. I'm a senior fellow at Mathematica. I have been here for 15 years now. Over the course of my 35 plus year career in health policy research, uh, most of my research interests have focused on the Medicaid program broadly. And the Medicaid program has uh, grown enormously over time. It now covers one in every five or six people in the entire country. And even though people who use long-term services supports and receive that care through Medicaid programs, their costs are disproportionate. About a third of all Medicaid costs are spent on long-term care. So because it's such a big cost driver, my interests have really focused on long-term service supports. Most of my research has focused on how to help people remain out of institutions or if they are there, how to return to the community if that is their wish, in part because uh, there have been so many problems with the quality of care provided in nursing homes over the past 40 years. Um, we will probably get into that a little bit later in the course of this discussion, but again, my interests are more in for people who really don't want to be in a nursing home in their later, when they have disabilities, serious disabilities, or when they are frail and older, my work focuses on how to help people remain, return to the community. Okay, great. And you both worked on a project for the state of Connecticut assessing the impact of COVID-19 on the state's assisted living and nursing homes. But before we get into the details of that, specific project on Connecticut, could we set the table by explaining why a state, any state, would want to know more about COVID-19's impacts on this population and on you know nursing homes, assisted living facilities, the places where some older residents would be living? Well, as you probably recall, the first epicenter of the pandemic in the U.S. was in a Seattle area nursing home. And since then, over 77,000 residents of nursing homes have died in the U.S. since the beginning of the outbreak. Residents in nursing homes represent about 1% of the total population of the U.S., but to date they account for over 40% of COVID-19 deaths. And in Connecticut, that number is even higher. Nearly three-quarters of folks who have died from COVID-19 have been in long-term care settings. And, you know, folks who live in, in a long-term care setting are particularly vulnerable to a virus like COVID-19, both because of the higher prevalence of, of underlying clinical conditions and because of the frequent person-to-person -person interactions that are common in these settings. So I, I think we owe it to all of, of those who have lost loved ones in nursing homes, and, and my family is one of those. We've, we lost a, a grandparent to, to COVID over the last couple of months. And, you know, I think we owe it to everyone to, 
take an honest look at what what could have been done differently so that, you know, should we ever have an outbreak like this again, the most vulnerable members of our community are not so disproportionately impacted. And that's, I mean, you mentioned that at the start of the pandemic in the United States that some of the most notable outbreaks were in nursing homes, but that's, that it remains to be an area of concern, right? I mean, this is still because uh, I, I feel like I, I read in my own area in Alexandria, Virginia, that some of the most concerning outbreaks are occurring in long-term care facilities. Is it still a type of place where we're having trouble controlling the spread of the virus? You know, it's interesting. I think our collective attention has shifted to how the virus is spread and what its impacts are in other settings, particularly in universities and in schools and daycare centers and so on and so forth. But think about it. The reason why we don't read about as many outbreaks in nursing homes or assisted living facilities is that they have been under lockdown since early in the epidemic, in the pandemic, and they continue to be largely locked down. In other words, there are incredible restrictions on the ability of family members and others to come into those facilities. The staff who do are subject to regular testing and screening. And, you know, again, some of the early outbreaks were caused because nursing home staff did not have adequate personal protective equipment. Now those supply problems have been addressed for the most part, and so that has helped enormously. But when the virus is introduced, quote, by accident or because it comes in through somebody from the outside, a staff member or somebody else who brings it in, it can cause enormous illness and deaths. So it's still a very vulnerable population, and when the early lessons and the steps that were taken to try and limit the spread of COVID-19 in nursing homes. When they kind of break down, you see it and the effects happen almost immediately. Okay. So let's talk specifically about the project in Connecticut. What is the context in that state? And perhaps you can talk a little bit about how the cases and deaths compare to other states in the region or country. And also, you know, what did the state specifically ask Mathematica to do for this assessment? Sure. So as I mentioned, um, Connecticut, like other states in the Northeast, were among the earliest to be hit very hard by COVID-19 back in March. Um, And the outbreak was particularly bad in Connecticut's long-term care facilities. So back in June, the governor of Connecticut, Ned Lamont, ordered an independent assessment of the COVID-19 outbreak in long-term care. And the scope of our work included a look at how well the state and the long-term care industry responded to the outbreak. We published an interim report in August, which contained a number of short-term recommendations for the state going into the fall to prevent a potential second wave. And now we've released a final report that contains a complete assessment of the outbreak, as well as the state's preparedness and response to COVID-19. The final report also contains long-term recommendations for structural changes that the state and long-term care industry can make to ensure that something like this never happens again. We did look at outcomes in Connecticut compared to other states in the region. 
Our ability to do that is somewhat limited by the data that other states make available or differences in how they count cases or deaths in, in nursing homes and long-term care facilities. And what we found that Connecticut's outcomes really didn't differ all that much after we adjusted for certain facility level characteristics and things like that, but they were all equally bad. The Northeast was the, you know, kind of the, with, as we all know from media coverage in New York City and other states in the Northeast, it was, you know, really the the first geographic region of the country to be hit really hard and Connecticut's outcomes, you know, reflect that. Okay. I noticed that in the report, you note that there are other states that also have been commissioning similar kinds of assessments, that it's not as if Connecticut is the only state to have had an alarming number of cases or deaths in long-term care facilities, that this is something that a lot of states appear to be focused on trying to prevent if there is a second wave. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Connecticut is somewhat unique in that This is an independent assessment done outside of their Department of Public Health, for example. Several of the other states, it's been more of an internal assessment. But many other states have released reports. And I will also note that just this week, actually, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the federal regulator of nursing homes, released a report from its commission uh, to study quality and safety related to the coronavirus for nursing home residents. Okay, great. So uh, I know there are a lot of findings, a lot of recommendations in the report, but if you had to hone in on a few of them, what would you say are the top line findings and how did they inform recommendations in, in anticipation of a potential second wave of infections? So we looked at both facility and resident level information to try to tease out what was most predictive of COVID-19 cases and deaths. And one of our really strong top line findings is that community prevalence of the virus is really important. So nursing homes and towns that have more cases also had worse outbreaks. And to me, this really emphasizes that we all play a role in protecting the vulnerable members of our community. So let this be my public plea for everyone to continue to wear a mask and practice social distancing and also to get your flu shot because it is that time of year. We also found that facilities with more staff were better able to limit the spread of COVID-19, likely because with more staff, each individual staff member is caring for fewer residents, and so they may have more time to implement good you know, infection control practices. And also, frankly, if, if a staff member is sick or potentially asymptomatic, they have fewer opportunities to spread the virus to more residents that they interact with. We also looked at declines in the physical and mental well-being of residents who were in the nursing home over the course of the entire outbreak. And as Deborah said, these places have been on lockdown. Family members and friends have not been able to visit since very early in March. In many cases, resident movement is restricted within the facility. And so we were also interested in looking at outcomes besides death. So we found pretty significant increases in depression and also increases in unplanned weight loss, which in older adults is a sign of of potential physical deterioration. And that to me just, you know, says that the impact of some of these visitation restrictions coupled with 
the trauma of going through such a, a scary time and potentially losing friends and loved ones in the nursing home has had, you know, impacts on residents. And I, I should be clear that many of the policy responses that facilities and states took to limit visitation were absolutely critical to limit the spread of the virus. But they, you know, there's certainly is a trade-off. Deborah, is there anything you'd add that stuck out to you? Let me just pick up a little bit on what you were saying about the staffing uh, characteristics or trends that we saw in some of the facilities that had somewhat less serious outcomes. We've known for decades, really, that higher staffing ratios, uh, the number of nurses and nurse aides to individual patients uh, or residents in a facility is very much correlated with better outcomes. So it, it should not be surprising that we found higher staffing to be a, a very important predictor of better outcomes. But it's difficult for many facilities to have as much staff as perhaps even they would like because of the long-standing and much broader issues in the long-term care workforce. These are tough jobs. These are hands-on care for people who have, you know, significant disabilities. And typically the pay in these places is pretty low relative to lots of other options that folks may have, whether it's, for example, in hospitals, in the healthcare sector, or in the, you know, McDonald's and Burger King for people at the direct care worker level. So the folks who work in these places are certainly very dedicated. And at the same time, we found that those facilities that had more staff who worked in other nursing homes, or perhaps even other, other places, uh, to supplement their low wages also were a source uh, of some of the infection that came in. So I think it points to sort of a broader set of tentacles that the staff in these particular types of facilities have into the broader community. So there's a lot of different factors that interact here to make the risk higher for nursing facilities in general and for those in particular that may not have as highly paid or staff who have adequate benefits, paid sick time, et cetera, et cetera. All right. Deborah, to what extent does this analysis have practical lessons for other states? Where do you think the findings are transferable? And where where should listeners be aware that maybe the findings are specific to Connecticut circumstances? Well, as Trish pointed out so eloquently, the impact in Connecticut was certainly more severe than it was in other states. But I think the the findings and the recommendations that we make are applicable very broadly to, to virtually every state. You know, I mean, Connecticut wasn't the only one. I mean, in most states, you know, the disproportionate share of cases and deaths have been in nursing facilities or in assisted living facilities. So that's really important to remember. And then some many of the specific findings and recommendations that we make remain very, very clear. Some of them are to prevent a second wave from having such a severe impact, and some of them are much longer-term things that need to happen to ensure that nursing homes and assisted living facilities are not subject to such you know, terrible outcomes in future outbreaks of whatever it is, whether it's flu <laughs> or another wave of COVID or anything else. 
Um, so I would say that just about all the findings remain, you know, very relevant to all states. And I'll go back to one of them that Trish was talking about before that we've touched on several times now. And that is the need for a balance between strict measures to limit the spread of the virus and attention to the residents' physical, emotional, and psychosocial needs. I think that balance has always been a little bit difficult in nursing homes. There's this notion that people with disabilities need a safe environment. And that may be true, but they also must be given sort of a, a dignity to take certain risks. And if you know, they or their family members feel that an in-person visit with appropriate uh, personal protective equipment, with appropriate screening of those visitors, with appropriate, in some cases, you know, showing that you have a, have a negative test, if those kinds of steps are taken, then I think you know, Connecticut and every state has to make it possible for family members and other essential caregivers to to enter the facilities again very soon if they're not already doing so. I know that nursing homes may feel that they may be held liable if they start opening up too soon or too broadly, but again, because of what we found in terms of the terrible effects on residents' well-being writ large. The recommendations that we make concerning what we call, put under the umbrella of person-centered care, really are applicable throughout the country. You know, and that includes both people and visitors coming in from the community as well as movement of residents within their facilities. It's interesting that I see parallels there with the conversation happening around K through 12 education right now, where educators are trying to balance the <clears throat> desire to minimize the risk of infection while at the same time recognizing that for many or maybe most students in person instruction would be better from a learning perspective. So just, yeah, there probably are lots of, lots of areas of life where, we need to sort of evaluate the the trade-offs of the sort of the, the, the safest from a public health standpoint with the uh, the thing that's going to be best for people overall and their overall well-being. You know, the, the pandemic has laid bare issues in a variety of policy areas. I know it, it early on it seemed to clarify for me the value of paid sick leave, for example. We need to have that available to more people. Within the realm of long-term care services, how do you think the pandemic may may shape long-term care services and supports, both in terms of in, in Medicaid and more broadly? Let me see. There's there's so many different aspects of that, but let me let me see if I can take a few for you. As you said, I think the COVID nineteen pandemic has shown a very harsh light on the vulnerability of residents in nursing homes and the fact that these nursing that nursing homes generally are very poorly funded, insufficiently monitored, and that has been the case for decades. I think to me one of the real disappointing and in some ways bordering on immoral aspects of the pandemic has been that nursing facilities were in the fourth wave of federal COVID funding relief funds. 
not the first or second or third. So, you know, they're way back in line as they have been for, for many, many decades. At the same time, if you look over that, say the last two decades, nursing facility utilization rates, the, the number of people who enter or stay in nursing homes has been falling steadily. Uh, there's many different reasons for that. Uh, some of it is federal and state reimbursement policy. For example, as, as the number of people who are enrolled in Medicare Advantage, managed care plans for, for Medicare has risen to more than a third of all Medicare beneficiaries. Those Medicare Advantage plans say, gee, if you're going to be discharged from a hospital, we want to send you home because it's less expensive and it may even be better for your health. So they have been uh, contributing to that trend. Medicare fee-for-service and Medicaid uh, managed care payment rates to nursing homes have also been paltry over time. But I don't think that's really, you know, when you look at these trends, there's so many different causes for declining nursing facility occupancy rates. And many of them have to go back to people's fundamental preferences. If they're going to, if they have a choice of where to receive care, whether it's short-term rehabilitation, post-acute care after, a, after they get discharged from a hospital, or if it's for long-term care because they are severely disabled or they are older and frail, increasingly they can live in home or community-based settings, and you see that happening. I think the COVID pandemic is only going to accelerate that trend. People see the dangers of uh, living in places where it's very, very risky <laughs> in the midst of a, an infectious disease to be around so many people. Everybody thought, oh, it's great. They have social activities there they may not have at home. Well, this is the other side of the coin. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think in the short term, yes, some funding uh, relief is needed to address the, the shortfalls in revenue that nursing facilities have faced due to COVID because of the additional care that they needed to provide, the additional PPE, the, the ongoing testing of staff and residents, and that's all very important. But in the long term, I think uh, you'll see an acceleration of the trend across the country in, in virtually every state to make home and community-based service options, alternatives to nursing homes, much more available. And that's gonna require a lot of thought and again, attention to some of the same issues we've been talking about today. And that is that we need to invest more in the workforce so that as more people choose to live in the community, uh, if they need long-term care, that it doesn't all fall on the backs, literally, of families and poorly paid caregivers. And uh, Medicaid rates need to increase to ensure that those direct care workers receive a living wage and health insurance benefits and paid sick time, among other things. So as with any study, there are limitations and caveats that we should mention about this project. Tricia, maybe you can take this one. What are the potential limitations in this research or perhaps gaps in the data that listeners should be aware of when interpreting or absorbing the findings we've been talking about today? I would highlight two. Uh, first, 
we just don't have as much data or information on folks who live in assisted living facilities to do the kind of analysis that we were able to do for nursing home residents. The primary reason for this is that Medicare and Medicaid under most circumstances really do not pay for assisted living and that setting is far less regulated than uh, nursing homes. And so while in nursing homes we have very rich resident level assessments that take place at regular and predictable intervals and we can use that data to do the types of analyses we did for this project, we really could not do the same for assisted living. The other limitation that I would highlight is is that different states are reporting information differently and they all use a little bit different methodology to uh, count cases and deaths of of long-term care facility residents. And so we did our very best to understand what those limitations are and to understand how all these other states report their data. And we tried to make some adjustments to be able to compare apples to apples, but you know, in all cases that, that was not possible. So I think it, it just points to the need for more robust reporting and by states of, of their long-term care data and also just to the, the lack of, of data really for assisted living residents. Are there any other limitations we should highlight, Deborah? Well, you're gonna suspect that I'm a broken record here, but some of the other state assessments that we've seen also look at the impact on long-term care facility staff. We, we did so a little bit in this report, but it, we were limited because Connecticut really didn't keep track of the number of COVID cases and deaths among staff who work in these facilities. Again, just a, a bit of information, but not to the same extent that it tracked the course of the pandemic on the residents themselves. So I think in some ways we're seeing part of the picture, uh, not the entire picture, if you really think about the long-term care sector overall. And, you know, I mean, again, we were even asked to focus our report and our assessment on nursing facility and assisted living facilities. That's, you know, there's a whole world of uh, long-term care that is delivered in home and community-based settings. And again, our, our that was beyond the scope of this particular assessment, but I would think that uh, to really do a comprehensive look at what the, the, the effect of the pandemic on the long-term care uh, sector overall, you'd have to really extend it beyond and into uh, the, the home and community-based setting as well. Okay. Um, standard last question for any interview, anything I should have asked about but didn't, or is there anything that you wanted to cover that we haven't yet? Well, just uh, the sort of the final takeaway here, I, I think those who read the report might be somewhat daunted by the dozens of recommendations that we make. I think uh, there are uh, what there was over 40 individual recommendations, combination of short and long term that we are recommending to the state and the, the long term care industry in Connecticut to both mitigate a potential second wave of COVID-19 and prevent future infectious disease outbreaks. And yet, we believe that each and every one of these are important individually and collectively. 
Um, and may, you know, we understand that uh, states are incredibly strapped for revenue right now. The overall economic crisis that the, the pandemic spawned um, doesn't make it any easier for states to respond. They, they are short-staffed. They don't have as much money as they need to really take up every one of these, these recommendations. So I think it's going to require political will, financial resources from the state, and potentially the federal government and really a commitment from everyone, as Trish said at the beginning, everyone in the state of Connecticut to make a collective commitment to protect the health and well-being of some of the state's most vulnerable residents. If a reporter from, say, a Connecticut newspaper was interviewing you about this report and they gave you permission to decide on what the headline and 280-character tweet would be about the report, what is that? What would you do? You have you thought about what that one descriptive takeaway might be? Like, what's the one thing people should remember about the report? And sort of somewhat in defiance of what you just said, that you know there are lots of important takeaways and that they're all important. But is it you know if there was one thing that that they should know, is there something that you would prioritize at the top? Yeah, no, I I think that conclusion that Deborah ended on was really good, and you know I I think. Our findings related to declines in well-being, I've not seen those published yet, and I think that that is a really unique element of the analysis that we did and one that I would want folks to come away remembering. And it gets back to the tension that Deborah raised of balancing safety and the other needs that we have as individuals for social connection and we need to remember that folks who live in, in nursing homes, this is their home, this is their community, and we need to make sure that any policy response considers the whole person. Thanks again to my guests, Patricia Rowan and Deborah Lipson. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to On the Evidence. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and elsewhere. Ratings and reviews on iTunes are always welcome as they help others find the show. You can also keep up with the podcast and other interesting work from Mathematica by following us on Twitter. I am at JB Wogan. Mathematica is at Mathematica Now.